You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Charles Spurgeon was a man who was acquainted with intense suffering and affliction. Uh, Spurgeon suffered attacks from the outside, from things that are outside of the body and outside of himself, outside of his church. In London in his day, he was vilified in the press over and over and over again. One of the things that he was vilified for was his theology. He was mocked and vilified for that. In London, all of the Arminians on one side labeled him a hyper-Calvinist. And all of the hyper-Calvinists in London labeled him an Arminian. And so he was hated in both camps because he didn't agree with either one of them. He was right square in the middle. He believed that God is sovereign and man is responsible, and there he stood. Scripture teaches both. I may not understand how they are resolved at the end of time, but I must hold on to both of those truths. And so he was hated by everybody else. Uh, He was bitterly vilified in the press, and the arrows that were thrown at him and shot at him stung intensely. Spurgeon once said this, I grew inured to the falsehood in spite. The stings at last caused me no more pain than if I had been made of iron. And he said, no real harm has come to any of us who have run the gauntlet of abuse. Not even a bruise remains. Not only did he deal with exterior suffering, but Spurgeon also had to deal with incredible personal bodily suffering. He was plagued by gout. And there were weeks that Spurgeon spent in his bed on his back where he could hardly move. And he would hobble into the pulpit on a Sunday morning and barely able to stand on his feet, he would preach for 45 minutes. And then he would hobble out of his pulpit back to his bed and there he would stay for the next week. And one time he wrote a letter to a friend and he described himself as altogether abandoned. And he wrote this, I am not able to leave my bed or to find much rest upon it. The pains of rheumatism, lower back pain, and sciatica mingled together are exceedingly sharp. Listen to this. I am aware that I am dwelling in a body capable of the most acute sufferings. On top of that, his wife Susanna was a semi-invalid for most of their marriage. She had her own set of physical disabilities that he had to deal with and that she had to deal with. On one occasion, one of Spurgeon's critics told him it's because of your sin, like Job's friends in the book of Job. His critics said that God is chastening you. That's why you have all of these ills. To which Spurgeon responded by this, I rejoice that I have such a God as that, and if he were to chasten me a thousand times worse than this, I would still love him. Yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. It was out of the cauldron of his own personal affliction and suffering that Spurgeon was, a- Spurgeon was able to speak so much on the subject and write so much on the subject, and his huge three volumes, three volumes on my shelf, work, The Treasury of David, is his own personal reflection on the Psalms in the midst of his sufferings. And he wrote out of his own suffering and out of his own trials. A prolific writer as he wrestled through doubts and discouragement and depression like few men ever know and few men ever have to deal with. On one occasion Spurgeon said this, Most of the grand truths of God have to be learned by trouble. They must be burned into us with the hot iron of affliction, otherwise we shall not truly receive them. I believe, Spurgeon said, there is no place where we can learn so much and have so much light shed on Scripture as we do in the furnace. He was speaking of the furnace of affliction. On another occasion, Spurgeon said this, 
There is no riding to heaven in a chariot. The rough way must be trodden. Mountains must be climbed. Rivers must be forded. Dragons must be fought. Giants must be slain. Difficulties must be overcome. And great trials must be borne. It is not a smooth road to heaven. Believe me, for those who have gone but a very few steps therein have found it to be a rough one. It is a pleasant one. It is the most delightful in all the world, but it is not easy in itself. It is only pleasant because of the company, because of the sweet promises on which we rely, and because of our beloved who walks with us through all the rough and thorny breaks of this vast wilderness. Amen. You see, friends, the saints of God have a unique perspective on suffering. We see that in Job, who after being informed that all of his livestock had been stolen, his servants had been killed, and his children had died, he fell to the ground and he worshipped. And he said, blessed be the Lord. He gives, he takes away. And in Job 1.22 it says that Job did not sin nor blame God in any of that. That's a unique perspective. Yea, though he were to slay me, Job said, I will trust in him. Even if he decided to take my life, I will not for one minute not trust him. We see it in the life and attitude of Spurgeon and the words that he used, suffering that he went through. We see it in the apostles who after being flogged before the Sanhedrin, Luke says when they left the presence of the council, they rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his sake. That's a unique perspective on suffering, is it not? And we see it in the life of Paul and of Silas in Philippi in the jail. In Acts chapter 16, and you'll need to have your Bibles open to that. Acts chapter 16. To review for you, last week we left the Apostle Paul and his traveling companion Silas in a prison. Not in the outer courtyard, but in the inner prison. Paul had done a good deed, having been vexed by a demon-possessed slave girl who made fortune-telling a prophet for her masters. Paul had turned to her eventually after being grieved by it and, and basically annoyed by what was going on and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And the demon left her that very minute. Well, when Paul had exercised the Spirit, he also exercised the prophet. The prophet went right out the window with the Spirit. And so the girl's slave masters decided that they were going to run Paul and Silas and their traveling companions, Timothy and Luke, out of town. So they drug them into the marketplace before the magistrates and brought up the most absurd false accusation that they possibly could have, that these men are throwing our city into confusion preaching things that it's not lawful for us as Romans to observe. They slandered them as Jews, raised that false accusation, played to their racial sentiments and their racism that was latent in the Roman culture, and to their own racial pride. And having whipped the crowd into a fury, the magistrates, not giving Paul any chance to defend himself, simply ordered that they be stripped bare, beaten with robes, and thrown into prison to be kept securely. And that is where they ended up, in the prison, with their feet in the stocks and not in chains brought together where they could lay down and enjoy themselves and, and be comfortable for the evening, but in stocks that were designed to force their legs as far apart as possible and to put their lower back and their legs into spasms. There they sat in a prison. Now, if you could be a fly on the prison wall, what might you expect to see? Pretend that you don't know how the story goes. What might you expect to see? Bitter, angry men. Falsely accused, my rights have been trampled, I have been violated, stripped bare and humiliated in front of the whole crowd, beaten with rods, and here I sit in a prison 
And the worst part of it, I have done nothing to deserve it. What might you expect their reaction to be? Cursing those, ma- those magistrates. Cursing the lack of justice. I would expect to hear Silas say, you know, Paul, when we get out of here, I'm going to find the best lawyer money can buy and we're going to sue everybody in Philippi. Our rights have been trampled. We're Roman citizens. We have a right to be treated better than this. There's amendments. There's constitutions. There's laws in Rome. Don't they know they can't treat Roman citizens like this? We might expect them to be bitter and angry at the Lord and frustrated and put out and disappointed, cursing the other prisoners, cursing the jailer, cursing the magistrates, cursing the people who falsely accused them and had them thrown into prison, cursing their circumstances, and yet if you were a fly on the wall, the one thing you would see is the one thing you would never expect to see. We see a scene played out before us that, to be quite honest, shames us, doesn't it? Verse 25, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That is the most shocking verse in the whole narrative. It's not shocking to me about the earthquake and being released from prison. None of that shocks me. What shocks me is verse 25, at midnight, you see, they can't sleep. You don't sleep. That's why they're awake at midnight. Peter was sleeping when he was in prison and Herod was about ready to take his life. But Paul and Silas can't sleep. They've been beaten. And now they're having a worship service in the jail. Now I ask you, friends, how would you respond in such a situation? How would you respond? Threaten to sue the magistrates? Threaten to sue the jailer for false arrest? Threaten to demand your rights? Would you be bitter? You have been falsely accused, humiliated, and beaten with rods, and there you sit, and every breath you take makes you reminds you, I think I cracked a rib, that guy with those rods when he beat me like that. And your muscles are so deeply bruised that even without the shackles, even without the stalks, you'd be barely able to move. And the welts on your back sting constantly, and you're not sure if that fluid running down your back is blood or sweat, and it might be coming from the back of your head because there's a, there's a knot back there that just makes you want to cry. And the worst of it all is you've done nothing, absolutely nothing, to deserve it. And they have a worship service. Now listen, friends, is that not the most insane response to the circumstances? No. That is the most sane response to the circumstances. That is the response of a man or a woman whose heart is blameless before God. Do you remember Job? My servant Job, he's blameless. And when the Lord allowed Satan to take everything, Job worshipped. How can he do that? How is it that you can suffer like that and sit in a prison and sing praise and hymns of praise and pray to God? Insane response? No, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.16, Rejoice sometimes. No, that's not what he said, is it? Rejoice always. You mean even when you're in prison, Paul? Even when you've been beaten, Paul? Even when your circumstances are the worst that they could possibly be? Rejoice always. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks. In some things or in everything? In everything. Rejoice always in everything. Sitting in a prison, I can imagine that the Apostle Paul's prayers and hymns of praise were prayers and hymns of thanksgiving and praise to God for allowing Him to be in those, that situation and that circumstance. Was Paul rejoicing in his circumstances? No. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice in the Lord. 
We don't rejoice in our circumstances. There may not be anything in the circumstances that warrant rejoicing. But I can rejoice in the Lord and I can thank the Lord for my circumstances. In everything rejoice and in everything give thanks. You say that's pie-in-the-sky idealism. That sounds good on paper. Jim, that's easier said than done. Would you agree with that? It is easier said than done. But Paul said it, and Paul did it. Perfect example. Rejoice in the Lord always. Friends, if you're going to have that kind of a response to your circumstances, you're going to have to understand a few things that Paul understood. Let me give you a couple of them. The first thing, Paul and Silas, in verse 25, the first thing that they understand is that their circumstances do not determine their joy. Their joy is not dependent upon their circumstances. We have that backwards because we attach inseparably our joy to our circumstances. Sometimes almost consciously. And we think that if things are not going well, we can't praise the Lord. If things are not just flying high in my life and my business and my ministry and my family, that things, I just can't praise the Lord. I can't worship. I can't be in a good mood. I can't have joy. I've got to fly off the handle and get mad at people in my situations. Paul understood that my joy is not determined by my circumstances. And I can have real and lasting and abiding joy in the Lord in any circumstance. You ever met somebody who said, I just had a a wreck of a week this week and I cannot worship today. My week was so bad I can't worship. I can't get myself in the mood. Wrong. It is the mature believer in Christ who can take their heart and their mind and their will and their spirit and bring them under submission to the Lord and offer to Him worship and praise in any circumstance. That's the mark of maturity. You see, I've had a wreck of a week. Oh, really? Were you falsely accused and beaten with rods and put into prison this week? Let's you and I sit down with Paul and Silas and talk about rough weeks. You want a rough week? He had a rough week. He understood that his circumstances do not determine his joy. Second, Paul and Silas understood that God is sovereign in our circumstances and over our circumstances. And friends, this is key. Spurgeon said that when the saints suffer, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which we lay our head. When the saints suffer, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which we lay our head. Paul and, Barnab- Paul and Silas understood that God is sovereign over circumstances. Our God does not rush around heaven pulling out His hair and biting His nails trying to figure out how to get control over your life and over your circumstances. That's not the God we worship. The God we worship is the God who providentially works all things for good and for His glory. He is the God who can turn the heart of the King. He sits in heaven, Psalm 115 verse 3 says, and He does whatever He pleases. And Daniel chapter 4 says that He rules in the affairs of men. Every situation... Every circumstance, every event, and every happening rests under His providential control. And if you will never be able to get your hands on that truth, you will never be able to worship God in the midst of the worst circumstances because you will constantly be thinking in your mind, it's out of His control. How can I worship Him in this if He doesn't control any of it? He is sovereign. And He is sovereign over my circumstances. And I must and I have to acknowledge that I can give Him glory because He in His providence works every last thing out for my good and His glory. My ultimate good and His 
ultimate glory. He works all things after the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1.11 says. And by His providence, He directs all of those things. God is sovereign over my circumstances. Now, you can confess those first two points, I would imagine. If you're orthodox and your and your theology is a reflection of the Bible, you would be able to say, I believe that my circumstances do not determine my joy, and I believe that God is sovereign over every circumstance. But then when the guy cuts you off in traffic, or your vacation gets canceled, or your flight is delayed, what do you do? You reveal, really, the theology of your heart. You get frustrated and angry and you fly off the handle and what you're really showing is that although you may say with your mouth God is sovereign over my circumstances and although you may say with your mouth my circumstances do not determine my joy, in your heart really you believe. God doesn't control any of it. He's not sovereign over any of it. He can't possibly be working a good purpose out in this and my joy is attached to my circumstances. That's really the heart theology. You see, our heart betrays us. To be honest with you, we fly off the rail at so much less than this, don't we? You get cut off in traffic, pew, off we go. Something happens, freezer gets unplugged and you lose some meat, and pew, off you go. You're, you're off on a tangent. You come unglued. Why? Because in our hearts, we do not believe that He is sovereign over our circumstances. In our hearts, we do not believe that He works all things after the counsel of His own good and that God is directing and organizing and orchestrating by His providence all things for the good of His elect. It all works together for good. To whom? All people on earth? No, Romans chapter 8 says. God's elect. Us. The chosen. Believers. He's interested in orchestrating it all for our good. Paul and Silas understood that my joy is not determined by my circumstances. God is sovereign over my circumstances. And they understood this third thing. God rewards the sufferer. He rewards the sufferer. 1 Peter chapter 2, when you suffer unjustly for doing what is good and you handle it with patience, you endure it with patience, it gains God's favor. Isn't that what you want? God's favor? Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul said, I consider the sufferings of this present age not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. There is a glory that awaits me. That glory to which the sufferings of this age aren't even worthy to compare with them. It's not like I can say, well, I'm going to suffer this much and I'm going to get this much glory. No, no matter what the suffering is, no matter what the affliction is, I must know and I must believe that it's not even worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 Second 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, our momentary and light affliction is working for us a far greater weight of glory. Beaten with rods, falsely accused, stripped naked before the crowd, put in stocks and sitting in prison. Paul says it's momentary and light affliction. Momentary and light affliction. If that's momentary and light, then what is having my vacation canceled or, or getting cut off in traffic? <laughs> it's absurd, isn't it? Joy is not determined by my circumstances. God is sovereign over my circumstances, and God rewards the sufferer. In 1659, Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote this, God, who is infinite in wisdom and matchless in goodness, hath ordered our troubles, yea, many troubles, to come trooping in upon us on every side. As our mercies, so our crosses seldom come single. They usually come treading upon one upon the heels of another. They are like April showers, 
No sooner is one over, but another comes. It's mercy that every affliction is not an execution, every correction not a damnation. The more the afflictions, the more the heart is raised heavenward. Tertullian said the the feet feel no pain in the stalks when the heart is in heaven. Where was Paul and Silas' heart? In heaven. God's sovereign over our circumstances. And I believe that if you could stop the clock and step into that prison and ask Paul, Paul, what is it that gives you the ability to rejoice in a situation like this? He would say to you, my joy is not dependent upon my circumstances, and I believe that God is accomplishing His purpose in this, whatever it is, and I may not know what it is. God is sovereign over our circumstances, but friends, notice verse 26, God is also sovereign over nature. Look at verse 26. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he had brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now God uses a very ordinary means to accomplish an extraordinary thing. Large earthquakes in that area, in the area of Philippi and the lower Europe and Macedonia and that area, they're not uncommon. Large earthquakes there all the time. But what is uncommon is that a large earthquake should shake and release all the shackles and be perfectly timed so that at the precise moment, as God's servants were praising, His servants would be released. And the doors would come unhinged and it would wake up the jailer. That is quite an, an unlikely occurrence. Earthquakes, no, but that kind of an earthquake, yes. And what I want you to notice is how God is free to use ordinary as well as extraordinary means, natural as well as supernatural means, to accomplish His purposes. God is not limited to just working in extraordinary, supernatural, miraculous ways. God uses ordinary, common things to accomplish His purposes. That's called providence. He works it all out. He does it His will. All of it ends up to accomplish exactly what God wants to accomplish. When prison was, when Peter was in prison, God sent the angel to release him. Walked him out the doors and right outside and said, you're free, go. And then Peter realized that wasn't a vision. He thought it was a vision. He was sleeping. He got woke up by the angel, booted him in the side. Do you remember that? In Acts chapter 12, Peter, get up. It's time to leave. God didn't send an angel to rescue Paul. He just used an earthquake. Earthquake's a common thing. God can use both, can he not? The angel releasing Paul wouldn't have woken up the jailer. The earthquake did. And as the jailer ran outside, he saw that the, the doors to the prison had been opened and he made almost a, a fatal mistake, a fatal assumption that the prisoners had escaped. Now, if you're a jailer and you walk outside and you see the doors open, you must assume that the prisoners have escaped. What prisoner would stick around when the doors to the jail have been opened up and they've been set free? And if you're a Roman guard, then you know that an escaped prisoner for you means what? What happened to the guard who was guarding Peter in Acts chapter 12? Herod had him killed. So the guard does what would be the most honorable thing to happen to him in that situation. It's really the lesser of two evils. He draws his sword and he prepares to fall on it to kill himself. Why is he doing that? Because if he doesn't do that, he's going to be publicly humiliated. A trial is going to take place. He's going to be beaten and he's going to end up dying anyway. He might as well save himself and his family all of the embarrassment and all of the pain and just fall on his sword. So he prepares to do that. Now, apparently, the jailer was not able to see inside the jail because it's midnight. It would have been darker inside the jail than outside the jail, even at night. But Paul would have been able to look out and see the jailer was about ready to fall on his sword. 
And so keeping him alive, Paul said, don't harm yourself, we're all here. At the moment that the jailer is about ready to thrust the sword into his own heart and take his life, Paul was, Paul was presented with a little bit of a dilemma. If I let nature take its course, he'll kill himself, and we're free to go. Or I can keep him from killing himself, understanding that it's going to mean further imprisonment for me. Tough choice? Is that a tough choice? Got to make a quick decision. Do I let him fall on that sword and go free? The Apostle Paul's not interested in escape. He's interested in evangelism. Sir, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Why didn't the other prisoners escape? The earthquake released all the shackles and all the stocks, it said. All the prison doors were busted off. The deliverance was not just Paul and Silas. It was all the prisoners. Why didn't they escape? There there may be a couple things going on here. First of all, it's possible that they simply were just stunned at what had gone on. They're sitting there unable to believe what has just taken place. It might have taken a few minutes to sort of process that. I'm free? The earthquake? Maybe that's just sort of shocked them into not doing anything. You've been in those situations. Something incredible happens and you're stunned by what you've just seen take place. You don't move for a few minutes. It may be that they saw quite immediately the, the jailer come out of the house and they see him outside and know if I try and escape, he's going to kill me. It may be that they just understood that if I escape and I'm caught again, my punishment's going to be way worse than what it was for what I originally done, so they stay put. I think something else might be playing here. I think that they heard the praises of Paul and Silas, they heard their prayers, and when the earthquake came, they understood in their minds, this is a supernatural confirmation of who these men are. This is not just an ordinary occurrence. A natural means, yes, but an extraordinary result. And so I think that they stand in awe of Paul and Silas and likely are fearful of them. And that allows Paul and Silas to be able to refrain them or maybe restrain them from escaping the prison. Perhaps it was Paul and Silas who just said, look, stay where you're at, nobody move. Let's wait till the jailer gets here. And if you were there and you had witnessed what you had just witnessed, you'd say, okay, I'm staying right here, I'm not moving. This guy says, don't move, don't move. He just caused an earthquake with his praying and his singing. I'm not going to move an inch. And you would stay there. You say, is it possible that they would have that kind of reverence? Well, the jailer certainly did. He grabbed lights and rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Fearful. The jailer. Just hours earlier, he had shackled their feet in the stocks. These were ordinary prisoners as far as he was concerned, causing riots and civil disturbance. But now he's trembling before them. And we assume that he locked up the other prisoners and secured them. And then he brought Paul and Silas outside of the inner prison, out into the courtyard, And he asked the most important question that anybody could ever ask in any situation, any circumstance, in any country. Sirs, a term of incredible respect. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Now, why is it that the jailer knew Paul and Silas could answer that question? Why did he know they could answer that question? I think for one, he saw their conduct, the prayer, the praise, likely prayer and praise regarding salvation and Christ and who He was and what they had received in Christ and thanksgiving in Him. I think it's also possible that the jailer knew of the slave girl who walked around after Paul and Silas for many days saying, these men are servants of the Most High God and proclaim to you the way of salvation. He, he knows. He knows that these men are messengers and now that has been confirmed by the earthquake that's taken place and they've been released. And suddenly the earthquake has shaken the jailer's world, literally and physically, because the defenses of his heart have gone down. 
that hard heart has been melted, and he kneels before Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? Now Paul gives to him an answer that has not changed for 2,000 years. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. You and your whole household. In other words, the promise is not just to you, but any in your household who believe will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Now, I could milk a whole sermon, maybe a couple series of sermons, out of that one sentence, but I just want you to notice a couple things about that. First of all, I want you to notice the simplicity of the answer. Believe. He doesn't complicate it because it doesn't need to be complicated. Believe. Not believe and be baptized. Not believe and be circumcised. Not believe and keep the Sabbath. Not believe and persevere. Not believe and work out your own salvation. Not believe and do this or that or the other thing. Just believe. Just believe. Now there's obviously more content than just that that Paul communicated to the jailer because you'll notice in verse 32 it says, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So there's more content than just believe, but this is the simple gospel message. Now friends, if somebody asks you the question, which I'm sure this happens to you every week, what must I do to be saved? Can you give to them that simple answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What does Paul mean by believe? He's not talking about merely an intellectual assent where I say, I'm going to believe certain facts about Jesus. He is talking about a living faith that reaches out and embraces Christ as truth. It is to believe that Christ is who He said He was and that He did what He said He did. It is to believe that He is God in human flesh, come down here to save sinners. And it is to believe that He died for His sheep, that He died for His church, that He paid the penalty for my sins, and that the God of all of the universe took upon Himself my sin and my punishment. It is to believe that Christ is who He said He is, and that Christ did what He said He did. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Such a simple answer, isn't it? What must I do to be righteous in the sight of God? Reach out and with faith embrace Christ and His work. Second, not only the simplicity of that answer, but I want you to notice the security that's involved in that answer. You will be saved. No ifs, no buts, no maybes, no possibilities. What is the promise? Belief brings salvation. What must I do to ultimately stand in the presence of God? One thing, believe. Place your faith and your trust in the person of Christ and Him alone. And believing faith is the kind of faith that reaches out and embraces Christ to the degree that I can honestly say, if He fails me, I perish in my sins. If He fails to do what He promises to do, I will perish. That's faith. All of my hope, all of my expectation, all of my anticipation for life to come rests upon the work and the person of one person, Christ. If He fails, I perish. But He can't fail. Why? Because of who He is. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's God's promise. You will be saved. That's security. Never to be snatched from the Father's hand. Never to be lost. Kept, as Jude says, by the power of God, I am secure in Christ. And if my salvation hinges and rests upon what Christ did plus what I do, then I am not secure in any way for any moment. 
But my salvation does not rest upon anything I can do, have done, will do, or might do. It rests solely and entirely upon the person of Christ. So if I believe on Him, I will be saved. No possibility of me being lost ever. Why? Because God's promise is, believe and I'll save you. Now the jailer obviously did believe. He believed in his whole household and they evidenced it by four things that we see in the text. And I want you to notice that beginning in verse 32, Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him, that is to the jailer, with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and he washed their wounds. There's four things that the jailer does immediately which give evidence of the fact that his salvation is, that his faith is genuine, saving, living faith. The jailer immediately begins to display good works which were destined beforehand for him to do. He immediately begins to show that his faith is a living faith and not just a dead faith. The first thing he does is he shows love for the brethren. These two men who were just hours before his enemies, his prisoners, are now his partners. And the jailer shows love to them. He takes them out to where there was likely a well in the courtyard of the prison. That's what they had. Inside the prison, they would have had a well out in the courtyard from which the prisoners could, could drink and bathe and wash themselves and, and, uh, and, and live from that water that was in the court without having to go outside. They likely went outside to where that well was, and there the jailer begins to wash their wounds. What an expression of gracious love, is it not? Now, he had just been involved with inflicting those wounds hours before. Now he's out there showing love to these two men. Look, he had seen Paul spare his life. All Paul had to do was remain silent and he'd be dead. And the jailer knew that. Paul spared his life. And now he's demonstrating love for Paul and Silas. And he takes them outside and he begins to care for them and wash their wounds. Love for the brethren. Second thing that the jailer does is he's immediately baptized. Verse 33. He was immediately baptized, he and all of his, or all of his household is the word supplied there by the text. He and all of his, all those who believed, were baptized. The Apostle Paul baptized the jailer and all those in his household who had believed. This is the pattern in the New Testament. And once again, we come up to a point where it mentions households believing and households being baptized. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, when we get to Acts chapter 18, we'll deal with the subject of infant baptism because it kind of comes up there for the last time. So he shows love for the brethren. He is immediately baptized, which is for him an expression of his obedience to Christ and a public, demonstrable display of his identification with Christ and Christ's work for him. And the third thing he does is exercise hospitality. Verse 34, he brought them into his house and set food before them. The jailer would have lived right there in the courtyard, likely in a quarters either above the prison cell or right next to the prison cell. While the rest of the prisoners are being kept there, he brings Paul and Silas in and they have a midnight snack. And the family prepares some food and they give it to Paul and they give it to Silas. Just like with Lydia, when the Lord opened her heart, she opened her home. The jailer did the same thing. His love for these two men whom hours earlier he had hated, his love for these two men now prompts him to open up his home and he brings in two criminals, as it were, vagabonds, dredges of society as far as the Romans were concerned, and he becomes their host and he serves them food. The fourth thing that the jailer does Verse 34 says, He rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his household. Joy. Friends, he shows love for the brethren. He is baptized. He exercises hospitality. And he rejoices greatly. Now, do you think that the jailer just might have something to lose in all of this? Yeah, he has. Now, you're going to see him put Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas back in prison. I think probably to preserve the jailer's life. 
But he has a lot to lose here. Now he is one of the very people that he was punishing earlier. But he's not scared. He's not worried. He's rejoicing. Friends, such is the dramatic transformation that the grace of God brings to the believing sinner. Once overflowing with hatred for the servants of God, he now loves them. Once unwilling to even open their shackles, he opens their home. Once he hated them, now he loves them. Once once he detested them and inflicted suffering upon them, and now he's doing everything in his power to ease their pain and to ease their suffering. That is what the grace of God does. It takes the most hardened and ruthless and wicked of sinners, which all of us are, and it transforms us into marvelous saints, active in doing good works which God prepared beforehand for all of us who love Him. Friends, did Paul and Silas see that God had a purpose in their suffering while they were suffering? They didn't. They had been beaten, put in prison, locked in stocks, and there they sat. And they praised God because they understood He must have some purpose in this. I don't know what it is, but I do know that He is able to work all things for His glory and for my good, and so they praise the Lord. Friends, the Lord may call upon you to suffer. He may bring affliction into your life, and you may not see exactly at this point what it is, but you can trust in the sovereign and gracious and good purposes of God to work it out for His good and to bring it all out to pass for His glory, and you can rest in it and worship Him and praise Him in the midst of it. Maybe not seeing until eternity what the purpose and the point of it all was. All of us have to go through this class called Affliction 101, Suffering 101. When we handle it the way the Lord wants us to handle it, we don't have to repeat the class. If you refuse to handle it the way the Lord wants you to handle it, and you resist His purposes, and you suffer with anger and bitterness and without faith, then guess what? You're going to repeat the class. Because He's going to bring you suffering 101 all over again until you learn the lessons that you should have learned the first time. Paul and Silas trusted in the sovereign purpose of God, understanding that their circumstances did not determine their joy, that God is sovereign over circumstances, and that God rewards the sufferer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for this marvelous example from Your Word which shows us Your grace and Your goodness even in the midst of personal affliction and suffering. And I pray, Father, that You would use this teaching from Your Scriptures, from Your Word, and this example from Paul and Silas to steal our hearts and minds toward being willing to suffer whatever it is that You bring into our lives, to handle it with patience and grace, and to be marvelous demonstrations of the grace of God in the midst of suffering. We do not know who it is that is watching us as we suffer and as we undergo affliction who might be being drawn to the Savior as a result of it, like the jailer was. We ask all of this, Lord, and pray for your grace upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.